Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Mean Old Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Welcome Black, 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 again, Black is always, Black is ever. Welcome to another wonderful episode of Black Arm of the Law. I am your host, the one and only Carl M.F. and Payne. For all the sponsors who tell me I can't cuss. Uh, you do. Uh, today's guest is, uh, uh, she comes to us by way of Nashville, I believe, right? Yes, sir. By way of Nashville, her name is Monica Blake. I say formerly Monica Blake, now Monica Blake Beasley. Congratulations. Thank you so much. She was with the Nashville Police from 2004 to 2019. She is an advocate for eradicating the blue wall of silence. Hello. After enduring discrimination, retaliation, and violation of civil rights from the police department, Miss Blake filed a federal lawsuit that will settle almost immediately. Oh, I can't wait to get into that. Cannot wait to jump into that. Please welcome to the Day Show, none other than Miss Monica Blake, Monica Blake Beasley. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, tell me a little about yourself. Where are you from, Rich? So I am from a small town in Tennessee, Tullahoma, Tennessee. Yes, Tullahoma. Have you been there? No, not at all. Well, yes, Tullahoma, uh, our motto is, it's a city as unique as its name. And so I grew up here in Tullahoma, played basketball, uh, left Tullahoma to go to Lipscomb University, which is in Nashville. And um, I graduated from there in 2004 and then started with the police department almost immediately afterward. So I've been in Nashville for the last 20 years where I served the city of Nashville and then uh, after the lawsuit, I stayed in Nashville for about another year and I've now relocated back home. That's awesome. Okay. So now what was it like where you grew up? Tell me a little bit about where you grew up in the neighborhood uh, that you grew up in and what was the so-called policing situation like where you grew up? So, um, again, being from a very small town in Tennessee, there were not very many black people here at all. Um, as a matter of fact, there still aren't many here now. Uh, policing growing up, I never really had much interaction aside from our school resource officer at the school. He was amazing. He was kind. He was generous. And I never encountered any adverse issues with the police. Uh, so I always had a really trusting relationship with the police, which is also why I wanted to be a police officer. I knew that I had never seen a female officer here in Tullahoma. I had definitely never seen a black officer. And so I wanted to be able to give back to my community. Um, and also I wanted for people to see someone who looked like them because there weren't many female black police officers. So I wanted to step in and be what I always hoped to see, but had never seen. Be the change you hope to see. 
Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. You know, I've had a lot of guests on the show and a lot of the times they actually, um, I don't want to say a lot of the times, but you know, quite a few times it was because of the things that they saw that they didn't like. Mm -hmm. It happened to them personally. Um, that shall I say was the catalyst for them wanting to join law enforcement. So that's interesting. That's a little refreshing to hear. That's very refreshing to hear. So you joined in 2004 and what was that like? I started with the sheriff's office um, and here in Nashville, the sheriff's office is in charge of all of the jails. Um, They're also in charge of service of civil process. So my job was to work inside of a large pod, which is basically a cell that typically had between 40 and 50 men. And that's where I got my first feel for law enforcement. Uh, There was an opening with the police department. The police department paid a little more. And so we went through the police academy, which is about five and a half months. Uh, It was very rigorous. There was a lot of physical training. You know, it's very paramilitaristic, very in your face. Uh, There's a lot of weapons training. Uh, There's a lot of one-on-one, hand-to-hand dojo training. So, you know, everything that you can imagine. Uh, What else did we do? There was map reading, um, which I struggled with. Goodness, I'm not the best map reader at all. I'm so thankful for GPS now. Uh, we also did driving well, courses. So, so needless to say, needless to say, you, you would have been horrible in the Girl Scouts. Oh my gosh, I would have been terrible. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we graduated the police academy, one of the instructors gave me a compass because <laughs> that was not my strong point. Hilarious. <laughs> Hilarious. Okay. So now you said there weren't a lot of black, uh, a lot of black people, let alone black females where you um, necessarily grew up. So what was that experience like? Yeah. So actually when I came through the police academy, uh, our class was kind of marketed. So we were known as being the most diverse class that had ever come through a police academy in Nashville. So there were more females than they had ever had in a police academy. There were also more African-Americans or people of color. So they made it seem as if it was going to be this enlightened experience where, uh, you know, they were searching to make the police department more diverse. So there was a front there that made it appear that we were going to be more inclusive as a police department and that we were going to be just more diverse altogether and that everyone was going to be treated equally as a result of their recruiting efforts. It wasn't until I would say I had been on the police department for about six or seven years that I really started to notice there was a huge difference in the way not only female officers were treated, but also in the way African-American officers were treated versus white officers. There was a very real and distinct difference uh, that really was undeniable within the police department. And any time that it would be brought up, officers would tend to be disciplined, particularly the African-American officers, whereas the Caucasian officers Uh, things would be swept under the table. So it wasn't until about six or seven years in that I really began to open up my eyes and notice things are really not the same for women or for people of color. So give me an example. Give me an example uh, of, you know, of, of, uh, of that. What, you know, give me an example of what, what happened that brought that to your attention or, or some examples. And you obviously you don't have to name names or anything, but this for for our listeners and for me, paint the picture. Okay. So there was one example where there were eight African-Americans 
and one Caucasian officer who this was during um, a summer camp. So it was a lot of downtime and it was planning week for a summer camp. So I want to make this clear. There were no children present. It's a big group of officers. I would say probably 60 officers or so. Again, no children present. And it's immediately after lunch. So there's a lot of downtime. All the work has been done. Really, we're just sitting around killing time. And so an officer had brought the card game, Cards of Humanities. And so, again, there were eight, maybe not the most work appropriate, but again, there were adults playing. There were no children, no children present at all. These eight African-American officers and this one Caucasian female officer were all playing Cards of Humanities. There was at least two male white supervisors who walked by um, and even engaged in the game, nothing at all was uh, they didn't find anything inappropriate going on. And then there was one African-American supervisor who was actually playing with the officers. There was an allegation that somehow the N-word had gotten thrown around, which never happened. And so a complaint was made. When this complaint was made, they the only thing they could come up with was that the officers uh, should have been devoting more time to duty uh, or being more constructive with their time so all of the African-American officers were disciplined. The one female officer who was playing got absolutely nothing. And so I then went to our internal affairs after I went back through all the videos and I said, hey, this white officer was playing for the exact same amount of time that these African-American officers were playing. Why did they get disciplined and she did not? So then they did end up disciplining her after the fact but for the black officers that had already been disciplined, they then decided that they would restrict them from participating um, in camp or from allowing them to have like special assignments. So not only did the African-American officers take the initial punishment, but then they were also punished for three years after the fact. And when again, the Caucasian officer just got a slap on the wrist. That was that was when I realized it was not the same playing field. And there were so many officers that were like, Monica, let it go. Don't say anything to them, because if you do, they're going to bring down hell and brimstone on us black officers. And I was like, no, they're not going to do that. They're going to want to do the right thing. And, and I was, was so wrong. And this was in your hometown, Tullahoma? Or no, Nashville? this was in Nashville, Nashville. So I've never been a police officer here in Tullahoma. Um, I'm now a criminal justice teacher uh, for Tullahoma, but I've not ever been a police officer here in Tullahoma. This was all in Nashville. All right. Well, let's get to that. Your journey led you to where you are now. Now, I'm sure this is um, maybe has been a sensitive subject for you. Or I'm not sure how you feel about it this time, but you've had to deal with some things. Um, it says here in your bio that you survived a violent sexual assault from an off-duty police officer. Yes. And if I'm not mistaken, this is, this is an incident that kind of led you on, the, on your journey to becoming uh, who you are today. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Tell us about that. So it was an officer that I had dated um, previously, and he, uh, we had gone our separate ways. And uh, one night he came to my home. And again, you know, we had not been dating for a while. I thought that everything was fine. He had asked if we could maybe uh, get back together. I was like, no, not the best idea. So, um, let me ask you a question. Let me, let me stop you real quick. Now, did you guys work for the same department 
No, actually, because the National Police Department is so big, uh, it was rare that I would see him at work. We worked for different precincts, same police department, but there are several precincts there. We did not work for the same precinct. And so we're at my home. Um, I'm thinking everything is otherwise fine uh, when all of a sudden, um, I think it's important that I note that that night when he came in, he had his gun um, and there was an end table by where I was sitting and he placed his gun by the table closest to where I was sitting. That unusual? It was unusual. It was unusual, but I didn't really think much of it uh, because, you know, again, I wouldn't let someone in my home if I thought that I was going to be attacked. So, um, I, but I did note that it was unusual where his gun was. As the night goes on, we're both sitting on the couch out of nowhere. He reaches over, puts his hands around my throat, and I couldn't breathe. And so where my head was, was closest to the arm of the couch by where his gun was. So at this point, I'm thinking, do I reach for the gun? I can't get him off of me. You know, like I'm trying to push him off me, trying to fight him off me, but he's heavier than I was, um, and he's got all of his force down on me, so I can't get him up. His arms are, or his hands are around my throat, and at some point, I lose consciousness. When I so wake wait, up- So wait, I'm sorry. So you did nothing to, um, Amy, forgive me for asking, you know, there was no argument or anything that led up to this, uh, you know, that could have been provoking in any way, you know. When this happened, there was absolutely nothing going on. Like we were on the couch watching Ridiculousness. Right. Um, prior, there had watching been conversations. We were watching Ridiculousness, yes. You know, prior, there had been conversations where I was very firm and very clear that right. I did not want to get back into the relationship, um, you know, and that it just was what it was. But so there what, wasn't what an argument. The relationship to end to begin with? Oh, gosh. He was narcissistic. He was controlling. He was abusive. Years prior, he had assaulted me. Police officer. Um, police officer. Police officer. Yes. And when he had assaulted me the first time, it was 2011. I'm sorry, no, it was 2010, January 2010, uh, when I was first assaulted by him. After the assault occurred, I missed a couple of weeks of work um, from the injuries. He would stalk me on my calls, like he would call dispatch to find out where I was and would show up on my calls. And I would have to call for other officers to come so that I would feel safe leaving the house or leaving the home that this I was, was at. This was before this, this incident? This was before, yes. So, so then what? What made you, I mean, what made you feel safe to let him come in that night? So this was years before. And, you know, I don't know how much you know about the cycle of violence, I, but I mean, over time, yeah. right, over time, I went back. I've definitely uh, spoken with quite a few women in this position who have, you know, and I, and I always ask because I, I just want to know what was that thing. You know, I've spoken to some women who said that they thought they could change the person, that if they were just, you know, that, that you know, or it was only when he drank, you know, different reasons. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so. No, I mean, he was charming. And, you know, when it was good, it was good. But when it wasn't, it wasn't. Right. Um, and I always wanted to believe that he would be better. And he just never was. And so once I finally decided that I had enough um, and was firm in it, I believe, of course, I've never confirmed this or had a conversation with him to confirm it. But I believe there was something that probably clicked in him that was like, oh, my God, she's really serious. What can I do to gain control here? Right. And um, the result of that was so he strangled me on the couch. Uh, with his gun right by my head. And I was terrified. 
Did I try to do something to get him off me? Yes. But when you're completely taken off guard, you can't breathe. There's not a lot that you can do. Um, my children were at home and they were present. Uh, they were asleep in the next room. So what do you do? Do you scream? Do you wake up the kids? Then do you risk something happening to the kids? I mean, it's a terrible situation to be in. Um, and one thing I will say is that from that point before, I always felt like I knew what I would do if someone was attacking me. I knew exactly what I was going to do because I had answered enough calls. I had written enough reports. I had been with these women in court. If yeah. anything happened, I knew what I was going to do. That's what I was going to ask. Until it actually happened. Yeah, and then gonna, I didn't know anything at all. That's what I was going to ask you if your police training had uh, came into play because you found yourself now living or being in one of these uh, situations that it, you know involved domestic abuse or whatever uh you know did did that ever come, did that ever come to play or you didn't realize that at the time that that's was completely taken off guard right. um and really just had no idea what to do now during the first attack i will say i felt i, I do believe that my it was more training that one because in the first one i was able to fight back but on this one, I was taken completely off guard. Again, we're at the house watching ridiculousness. Like, nothing was right. going on. Right, right. Um, so, after I was strangled, I came to, had no idea how long I had been unconscious, had no idea where my children were, but I saw that his gun was gone off the table. And so, uh, first I ran to the kitchen and threw up. And as I'm running to the kitchen, I realize that he's sitting outside my children's door. And so, I don't know, are my children okay? Has he hurt my children? Have no idea, you know, what has happened. And so, I stood at the time I had a column in my apartment. I stood at the column um, asking him to leave. He would not leave. And it was kind of like a standoff. Honestly, uh, I couldn't get to my guns. My guns were in my room. So in order for me to get to my room, I would have had to get past him. At this point, he's nearly killed me by strangulation. So I'm terrified. I'm not going to try to fight him. Um, I can't get to my police radio. That's in my room. And so I just don't know what to do at this point. But I'm most concerned if are my children okay. So how did you de-escalate the situation? I mean, there's uh, there really is no de-escalation to that. Like, I'm I'm just terrified, hoping that he's going to get up and go, but he's not. Um, and so then he eventually orders me to my room and tells me to take my clothes off. Again, the door to my room is open. My children are at home. Do you scream? Do you try to get a gun? What do you do? Right. Um, besides try to survive that moment. And so then he raped me and then he left. I was able to uh, call another friend afterward, but even then I was too terrified to report it. But I did. Um, by the time the other friend came to the house, I couldn't hardly talk. My neck hurt. I could barely breathe. It was hard to swallow. And so who, who, was, the uh, first, did, who was the first person you called? The first person that I called was another friend of mine. I got you. But she, she um, but this friend, he or she was not a uh, not an officer. He was an officer. Okay, okay. He was an officer, and so of course the first thing they say is we need to let somebody know. I'm like, no, are you crazy? We're both police officers. I don't want the publicity. I don't want you know any time that there is any type of sexual assault, particularly if it is a woman of color. There are a lot of questions 
There's also, in, in any case that I've ever seen, that I've had to sit through myself, it has felt like the woman was put on trial. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted for him to never be in my presence again and to leave me alone. Plus, I knew that there had been another woman who had accused the same man of domestic violence and had completely gotten away with it. They had not done anything. He had never gotten in trouble for it. And so I felt like if I were to report it, then it would just be me putting my neck on the line for them not to do anything again. And so by seeing the way that the police department had handled some of the cases before made me not want to come forward. So um, I did not report it, uh, but I knew that because of his past behavior, when he had stalked me before on previous, uh, after he had attacked me before, and I didn't talk to him at all. He had stalked me. He had sent me anonymous messages through text. Um, He had tried to send messages through friends. Um, all of those things. So I knew that those it was a possibility that those things could occur. And so I did not go to work again for several days. I called out of work, which is something I never do or never did at the time. Uh, I called out of work. I called one of my girlfriends who came and stayed with me for several days. And after I had been out for, I guess it was probably nine days. Um, within that nine days, he had showed up at my apartment complex to just like, in his truck, um, didn't get out, but thank goodness my other friend was there. My girlfriend had came uh, from out of state to stay with me. And I called and spoken with my principal at the time. At the time, I was a school resource officer. So I called him and kind of told him, you know, hey, I've been put in this situation where I don't feel safe. Um, if this person shows up to the school, I need for y'all to make sure that he does not get past the front office. Radio me. Let me know, um, you know, but you do not let him pass the front office. And they said, OK, let me ask you a question real quick. Did yeah. you did you, uh, did you notice this kind of behavior in other male officers or was this just like an isolated situation? So, no, there had been um, not with me, but there had been other female officers who had made complaints um, against other officers. There had also been civilians who had made complaints against officers. Mm. You know, I had one of my good friends. Uh, they would not back her up on calls because she wouldn't agree to sleep with him. Uh, wow. Wait, wait. Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Yeah. Explain that. You move too fast. You said one of your good friends. Yes. They wouldn't back her up on calls? Because she wouldn't sleep with them. She would not accept their advances. And so they wouldn't show up on calls. Uh, they wouldn't talk to her. They would ostracize is, and this her. Is, and this is part of the, this is the problem, right? This is a part this of This is all part of the problem. Right. And this, this is just one aspect of it. I think people don't understand what that means, right? When you, when your life is on the line and someone is not responding, that's what, that's what you're basically saying that you need to back up out there in the field. They're not coming. And, and that, it wasn't, it's not uncommon that things like that happen. And, that, and that's, um, like, that's a life or death situation sometimes, right? Right. Absolutely. I'll, t- I'll tell you about how I had to call for backup after I reported everything. So um, again, I had told my principal, um, there were several other people who I had told who were very close to me. And by the time I went back to work, You know, I told you I'd had the conversation with my principal the night before saying that he didn't, if he showed up at the school, he did not need to make it past the front desk. Well, apparently my principal had not had an opportunity to tell the ladies at the front desk that. And so while I'm at the school on my first day back, he shows up in my office 
with his gun in his hand. And thankfully, I was able to get to my phone to text the other officer who I had initially called uh, that night after I got attacked, and he was able to get my sergeant to come over. And so on that day, he was arrested. After he was arrested, I got an order of protection. He violated the order of protection. They put an ankle monitor on him. Ultimately, he got three years probation, and he pled to a lesser charge of aggravated assault. Three years probation? That's it? Three years probation. First of all, all African-American officers? I was attacked by an African-American officer, yes. Okay. But these other cases and incidents weren't all African-American officers, right? No, they were not. Okay. They were not. Okay. Now, if this was somebody, like civilian, what would have happened to him? Oh, if it were a civilian, he would have been prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Um, But instead, just as I had feared, when I reported it, I then began having, um, and I had very, very small discipline file, like barely anything there. All of a sudden, my chain of command began uh, accusing me of, it was crazy stuff. Um, they accused me of working a football game without having a uh, extra duty form on file. And I was out of state for that football game. Um, they also went back and said for my, I've got twin boys, for my twins first birthday party, I had a magician and I left a review online for a magician. Uh, they went back and pulled my review for the magician. And he was a wonderful guy uh, who also would perform magic for our police camps in the summer. But there were male officers who had left him reviews and even put like Sergeant such and so. Uh, But for my review, I just put Monica Blake, uh, no ties to the police at all. They went back and said that I was a police officer that was endorsing a magician and they uh, gave me infractions for that. I had asked for days off. Um, They would not give me days off. They changed my shift. Uh, They said that if I wanted to uh, come in at a certain time, that instead of them changing my full shift, that I would have to use vacation time to use that. Whereas there was a male officer who asked to have his shift changed and they were like, oh, we're happy to accommodate you. So why do you think this um, is? Why do you think they put up all these obstacles and roadblocks and started trying to build a file in a case against you? Why, why do you think that is? What's because that I was an officer who told on another officer. As right. an officer, but, I should have. But shouldn't the higher ups or, or, or the person who is a, the so-called leader or in charge, shouldn't they will not only be trying to basically do the right thing. Like, shouldn't they also be trying to protect you? Oh, they absolutely should, but they weren't. And so when I realized how petty they were being and when I realized that they were just building up all this frivolous paperwork, and then by happenstance, I'm telling you, sometimes like things things just happen. I was at the, uh, before he had settled and gotten his three years probation, I was at the front desk of the precinct And the commander had gotten a uh, subpoena, I guess, to go and testify on behalf of the rapist. He had never worked for her. He had never um, been under her command. But 
somehow she was going to testify on his behalf. Um, also, when it came time for trial, the DA's office said that they had been told by a high-ranking officer that I was unreliable and that they would basically say things about me that weren't, uh, that would make me look bad. And so um, this whole time I'm trying to figure out like, who could this have been? What What could this have been? And then we put together that uh, she was going to testify on his behalf. So at that point, I became afraid of my chain of command because it was my chain of command who was going to go and testify on his behalf. So they wanted to have a meeting. And so I go into this meeting with no gun. I called HR. I called um, my direct lieutenant. I told my direct supervisor, hey, because they're being so shady, I don't know if I can trust them or not, but the last thing I'm going to do is walk into a room with these three people who have been conspiring against me with a gun. Because if I do, there's no telling what they may say, and I want to walk out alive to tell my own story. That's exactly what I said to HR. That's exactly what I said to my lieutenant and to my direct sergeant. They all were like, you know what, Monica, that's fine. You don't have to wear a gun. Uh, you can go in plain clothes if you want. And so I went in plain clothes with no gun. There were two meetings like that. On that second meeting where I went in with no gun, the commander who was there filed a police report stating that she was intimidated because I went into the meeting without a gun. And they took the police report and they named me the suspect of assault well, by intimidation. I'm sorry. How, 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 how is not having a gun intimidating? I'm confused. I'm Mr. Carl, I'm so they, confused. They took a police report and said that she felt intimidated because I did not have a gun. And in the state of Tennessee, if you take a police report and if you name someone the suspect of a crime, the alleged victim has 365 days to prosecute. So there I was, I'd reported a crime and then all of a sudden, like my work ethic, nothing had changed. As a matter of fact, I had even gotten several um, several commendations from citizens as to how I was handling calls, you know, where they were impressed or where they felt incredibly safe or where they thought I provided stellar service. Um, so from the community, I'm getting all these commendations, but my chain of command said that they felt intimidated that I showed up at a meeting without a gun. And they took a police report. Well, let's get to this B. Let's get to this win. Let's get to this W. Then what happened? So I looked and looked and looked for an attorney. I called our fraternal order of police um, and asked if they had um, attorneys who could help. I had also been paying dues for a very long time. Uh, and, you know, it's the FOP's job to help officers who are in need. So the FOP actually helped to represent the rapist. And when it came to represent me for wanting to do something about the way I was being treated by my chain of command... All of their attorneys said it was a conflict of interest. And so I went to 13 different attorneys. And on the 13th attorney, um, I walked into the office of a gentleman named Kyle Mothershead, who uh, later became to me the dream team. And he took on my lawsuit and we filed a lawsuit for freedom of speech infractions, as well as hostile work environment and for discrimination. And I had pages and pages and pages of evidence of things that they had done. Uh, we filed the lawsuit in November, and by April, we were in settlement hearings. Now, why do you think they settled so quickly? Because I had so much evidence against them. And also, um, 
the legal department had said something along the lines like, uh, while they didn't necessarily agree with all of our accusations, they felt that it would be best uh, to settle in reference to the free speech accusations because I had been disciplined. Um, you know, again, I had asked for help from HR. I had asked for my chain of command. No one was helping me. And so I wrote an open letter to the mayor mm. and asked the mayor, hey, this is what's going on within your police department. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, when that didn't help, I, I wrote a letter to the governor and said, hey, this is your police department that's running amok. What are you going to do? And so basically the police department was saying that by me making known what was happening, that I was making the department look bad. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the way it was handled? I definitely feel like justice was not served yep. in totality. Okay. Um, I never really asked for the money. What I asked for was change. And what I asked for was justice. Justice would have just been the easiest thing. Uh, eventually they did change a few policies. But again, justice is all that I asked for. And is this why you're not an officer at this present time? Yes. Um, I left the department because there was just too much going on that, you know, by their willingness to settle showed me they weren't looking to make real change. They just wanted to put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. And there were so many other officers. um, And I did. I got a lot of support from other officers, but it was behind the scenes. So I would get private messages. I would get text messages, but they were all afraid. They were afraid. Yeah, they were were afraid afraid to say something, even to the point where there were officers that told me it would be in their best interest to not associate with me. Mm, mm, mm. And when I called for backup one time, uh, there was a large fight. I called for backup and people were not coming. I had to wait for forever. People weren't coming. When there was another fight, instead of me getting on the radio and asking for help, we have what's called, um, it's like the emergency button where when you hit this button, anybody that's in the area, they have to come. I ended up just hitting the button. I'm not gonna, I was not gonna play those games. Let me ask you a question. So how did they explain that, right? How do they, like, if they don't show up on a call, then you call for help and back, like, how do they get out of that? Like, that's on record, right? Hey, called you guys, y'all didn't come. Now I can legally say, well, I should have a record to go, hey, called them, they didn't come. What's up with that? Nothing at all was done. I asked to switch, I asked to switch precincts, um, and they did switch precincts, but nothing was done. Wow, so they care more about their image, so to speak. But thankfully, after I came forward with my allegations and my lawsuit, and I stood incredibly firm in airing out everything that I knew I could air out, there were um, 18 other women who came forward with allegations. And, you know, I'm proud of that. I am proud that they felt empowered to come forward. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sometimes all it takes is, is somebody standing firm and standing on, you know, or or, or um, just not being afraid, being brave enough and brazen enough to say, I'm not I'm not going to take it anymore. Um, I I applaud you, commend you for that. And, you know, you had to go through something so disgusting. And so, you know, but it's, it's also disheartening. I mean, you know, it's disheartening for someone like myself to hear this because it's like, I mean, you you were on that side, and so when you hear about that, the, the fact that, you know officers like yourself and others who are black and brown get treated the same way, it's like as a civilian, you go, well, damn, we ain't got no chance there. What does change look like? What you know, what I'm saying, what does that look like? What are you doing now? 
So now I believe I am, honestly, had I not have uh, went through that situation, I don't know that I ever would have left policing. Uh, But now I feel like I'm doing my dream job. I had gone back and got a master's in special education several years ago. And then I started on a doctoral program uh, for leadership and professional practice. And now I am an educator of advanced criminal justice at a high school. So I feel really lucky to be in this position because I'm able to take my experiences as a police officer, as a victim of crime, and as an advocate and help teach these children, these future professionals in law enforcement, I'm able to teach them the right way to get it done. And really, if we're talking about lasting change, I believe if you train them up in the right way to go, then they're going to go out and make a positive impact in their communities. And so I'm thankful to be in a position to be able to do that now, whereas before, I feel like there was a lot of barriers in wearing the uniform where I couldn't reach the people who would be going into the field. What does uh, what does police reform look like to you? This one's hard, but to me, I believe police reform is seeing every individual as if they were your neighbor. Why do you say you it's know? hard? Why is that hard? Because we have people who are brought up uh, not being taught about diversity. Not, uh, I feel like we have a lot of people who go into policing who were taught tolerance rather than acceptance. So maybe the training and the vetting process. I believe that absolutely needs to occur. But how do you do that based on limited interaction that you have in police academies? You know, you can get references to say just about anything that you need them to say. But I do believe that the way officers are brought in and the recruiting process needs to be more thorough so that you can get a better picture of who people are. So when there's incidents and and reports filed against officers, even internally, it stays internal. It's not made public. Is that correct? So sometimes it is. It depends on how egregious it is. I believe that any time an officer gets accused of anything, that it should be treated the exact same way that it would if there were civilians. In my case, had there been a history of the officer being treated the same way that civilians are treated when allegations are made against them, there Mm -hmm. wouldn't have been an opportunity for him to do it again. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that needs to change. You know, you got to get rid of that quantified immunity and you got to get rid of the whole fact that your 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 history don't follow. You know, you can get in trouble in Georgia and then go have a clean state in California. Like it's like, no, no, we need to know that you you you, you fucked up in Georgia. Quick thoughts. What are your thoughts on the George Floyd situation? I think every officer who was there had a duty to intervene, and because they did not, I feel they are all complicit. Every single one of them. They're all complicit. Amen. Amen. January 6th. The Capitol? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I have been consistently amazed at how the same people who called all summer 2020 riots call this a demonstration. How does that happen? Uh, You know, people died. People were made to feel unsafe. They had guns. An officer was killed. Why didn't Blue Lives Matter that day? Right. It's it's, it's, it's preposterously hypocritical to the point where it's like, I think the bad part is talking to some of these, the you know, some of these others, and 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 they hear them make the excuses too, and you're like, are you are you are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? 
to try to like explain it away or flip it or spin it and you gotta go are you kidding me which is basically just just speaks volumes as to you know what right. people, what people are really about it speaks volumes well and that's the sad part to me because if we're being honest no let's lie to each other we have to make sure that what one group does if it's viewed one way then if another group does it it has to be viewed the same you can't have all the double standards. You have to have equal playing field. Yeah. And that's all. I think we've been asking for forever is equal playing field. So book deals, running for office, what's going on? What are we doing? I am uh, happily married. <laughs> happily just married. Um, you know, when I moved back home, I was asked to run for office. And... I thought it would be a very tall order because I'm coming into a new career. I'm moving to a new location. I have children to raise. I'm about to be a wife. I'm finishing my doctorate. There's lots of things that I had in play, but now that I've been home and I see how some organizations and things move and shake, I feel like I'm not doing myself or my community justice to not make things better in areas where I can see them made better. So as I'm settling into teaching, as I'm now married, settled into my home, um, I am going to explore some of those other opportunities. Hey, bravo, bravo, bravo. All right. Well, you be know. the change, right? Hey, hey, be the change that you want to see. I mean, listen, some of us are chosen. And unfortunately, we got to go through some of these these things to to realize our purpose, right? I mean, you're uh, absolutely right. If we are pieces of clay being molded by the potter's hands, clay goes through some stuff before it comes out beautiful. It goes through high temperatures of heat. It gets formed. It gets, you know, it goes through some things before it comes out to be a beautiful piece of pot. Well, thank you. I definitely applaud you for sharing and coming on the show with us today. And, and I know I want to be a part of your journey from, from here on out. Keep us abreast of what's happening with you. Thank you. You've been a blessing. Continue to be that light. Thank you for joining us, Miss Monica Blake. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.